If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in or dialing up the podcast or whatever you're doing. Hope you're well, or at least reasonably, reasonably well. Aww. Jack feels terrible and is has headed home wisely. Um, and there are some newsy things, kind of ripped from the headlines, things that want to get to this hour, um, including uh, you know some of the developments in the Middle East as uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and the United States are trying to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and or you know wrenching it out of their hands once they get it through military action, certainly. Um, we'll be talking about that a little bit too in a Ukraine update. Um, heavy stuff, heavy stuff. But I've been sitting on this for a while and, uh, I wanted to share at least part of it with you. It's some absolutely wonderful writing, first of all. And I just think a really sane perspective from a, a woman who's a lifelong San Franciscan. Now, if you have friends in the Bay Area of California, uh, turn them onto the podcast, uh, send them the link or something like that. Um, because so ironically, we're not on live in the Bay Area this hour, but it's just so good. Like I said, I wanted to share it with you. Uh, Nellie Bowles is the name of the gal who wrote this piece, which was public in, published in The Atlantic. It's entitled uh, Chesa Bodine Recall, How San Francisco Became a Failed City. And though the Marxist lunatic Bodine is gone, a lot of the things that uh, kind of caused him to come to power are still going on. And and she opens up with a, a absolutely lyrical discussion of the San Francisco of her youth and the history of the place. And it was always weird, always a little bit dangerous. She talks about uh, the fog and the bridges and, and the bus drivers and the alternate lifestyles and the rest of it. I'm summarizing what, it, again, is some really good writing. But 
uh, cafes tucked uh, along narrow streets, Golden Gate Park, brightly painted homes, backyard chickens, l- lines for the oyster bars, men in chaps at the leather festival, etc. Um, but she writes, here's where, where she gets down to business. <clears throat> it's maddening because the beauty and the mythology, the preciousness, the self-regard are part of what almost killed San Francisco. And I, now in early middle age, sometimes wish it weren't so nice at all. But then she says, but I do need you to love San Francisco a little bit, like I do a lot, in order to hear the city of how my, I'm sorry, to hear the story of how my city fell apart and how it just might be starting to pull itself back together. And I'll tell you, departing from the text here, that, and, and I know Jack shares my opinion, that there are a handful of cities on the West Coast that are absolutely wonderful or were wonderful. Um, they're attempting suicide through a lot of policies that are just, they do, they're not practicable, which is a word that looks like practical, but it means in practice it just doesn't work. And again, as I've often said, uh, order without compassion is uh, brutality, but compassion without order is chaos and ugliness and crime. Um, and there's been a giant experiment done in in. Uh, compassion without order, and and it's falling apart. Uh, but back to uh, the the article. Um, this was written a couple of weeks ago, but because yesterday San Francisco voters decided to turn their district attorney Chesabodine out of office, they did it because he didn't seem to care that he was making the citizens of our city miserable in service of an ideology that made sense everywhere, but in reality. It's not just about Bodine, though. There's a sense that on everything from housing to schools, San Francisco has lost the plot, that progressive leaders here have been LARPing left-wing values instead of working to create a livable city. And many San, Francisco and San Franciscans have had enough. And this is, this is one of the, the uh, paragraphs that just got me. She writes, on a cold, sunny day not too long ago, I went to see the city's new Tenderloin Center for Drug Addicts at Market, on Market Street. It's a downtown, open-air, chain-link enclosure in what used to be a public plaza. I'll, uh, I've spent days, weeks, weeks, months there in that very spot. I know it well. Um, and she doesn't really pause on this thought, but the sentence, it's an open-air chain-link enclosure in what used to be a public plaza. Makes you stop and think a little bit. But anyway, to the point. On the sidewalks all around it, people are lying on the ground, twitching. There's a free mobile shower, laundry, and a bathroom station emblazoned with the words, Dignity on Wheels. I should probably point out that this woman establishes her bona fides as a, uh, a lefty, a liberal. Uh, pretty thoroughly. Um, and, and she is that, like many people in San Francisco. Anyway, back to the uh, the bathroom station emblazoned with the words, Dignity on Wheels. A young man is lying next to it, stoned, his shirt riding up, his face puffy and sunburned. Inside the enclosure, services are doled out. Food, medical care, clean syringes, referrals for housing. It's basically a safe space to shoot up. The city government says it's trying to help. But from the outside, what it looks like is young people being eased into death on the sidewalk, surrounded by half-eaten boxed lunches. Which is a point I've been trying to make for a long time, as eloquently as I could, but not as eloquently as she does. The idea that making it easy and comfortable and effortless for people to be hardcore drug addicts 
is not only not doing them a favor or not helping them, it's the opposite. It's the worst thing you can do. Recovery people talk about enabling. Now, I'm not, so, you know, people, you all who know me, you know me. I'm not some sort of lunatic who's like anti uh, getting a buzz on now and again, especially as a young person. You know, I did it. I still enjoy a scotch in the evening. Um, I'm not some sort of fundamentalist, not at all. But I've known people in my life, some of whom I cared about very, very much, who had substance abuse problems that were going to kill them, or in one case actually did kill a friend, um, and enabling them to do it is the worst thing you can do. One more time with this sentence, because it's beautiful and horrible. From the outside, what it looks like is young people being eased into death on the sidewalk, surrounded by half-eaten boxed lunches. Then she writes, a couple of years ago, this was an intersection full of tourists and office workers who coexisted somehow with the large and ever-present community of the homeless. I've walked the corner a thousand times. Now the homeless and those who care for the homeless are the only ones left. She goes into the uh, pandemic and the effect it had, which is absolutely true. Oh, da, da, da. But walking these streets awakens me to how bad San Francisco had gotten even before the coronavirus hit, to how much suffering and squalor I'd come to think was normal. Stepping over people's bodies, and sometimes bodies' bodies, blurring my eyes to not see a dull needle jabbing and jabbing again between the toes. It coarsened me. I'd gotten used to the idea that some people just want to live like that. I was even a little defensive of it. Hey, it's America. It's your choice. If these ideas seem facile or perverse, well, they're not the only ones I'd come to harbor. Before I'd left, I'd gotten used to the idea of housing so expensive that it would, as if by some natural law, force couples out of town as soon as they had a kid. I'd gotten used to the crime, rarely violent, but often brazen, by leaving the car empty and the doors unlocked so thieves would at least quit breaking my windows. A lot of people leave notes on the glass stating some variation of nothing's in the car, don't smash the windows. One time someone smashed our windows just to steal a scarf. Once when I was walking, a guy tore my jacket off my back and sprinted away with it. I didn't even shout for help. I was embarrassed. What was I, a tourist? Living in a failing city does weird things to you. The normal thing to do then was to yell, to try to get help, even, dare I say it, from a police officer. But this felt somehow lame and maybe even racist. Wow. Wow. This woman is robbed of her jacket by force and is afraid, and she doesn't say it, but it's obvious that because the assailant is a person of color, she might be a racist racist if she says, help, police, help, police. And again, the theme, the, the brave and smart theme of this piece of journalism or writing is the thoughts that became normal in her head and the things she started to just accept, which are patently unacceptable. Another example for you. She writes, a couple of years ago, one of my friends saw a man staggering down the street, bleeding. She recognized him as someone who regularly slept outside in the neighborhood and called 911. Paramedics and the police arrived and began to treat him. But members of a homeless advocacy group noticed and intervened. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, intervened? What, what, why? What, what, intervened in what? Yeah, I know. I know. 
They told the man, you don't have to get into that ambulance, and you have the right to refuse treatment. So that's what he did, confused. The paramedics left, the activists left, the man sat on the sidewalk alone, still bleeding. A month later, he died about a block away. It was easier to ignore this kind of suffering in the throngs of, amid the throngs of workers and tourists. You could always avert your gaze and look at the beautiful city around you. But in lockdown, the city became obscene. The city couldn't get kids back into the classroom. So many people were living on the streets. Petty crime was rampant. I used to tell myself that San Francisco's politics were wacky, but that the city was trying, really trying to be good. But the reality is that with the smartest minds and so much money and the very best of intentions, San Francisco became a cruel city. It became so dogmatically progressive that maintaining the purity of the politics required accepting or at least ignoring devastating results. Might go with a little more of this later in the hour. It's, again, absolutely beautiful writing. We'll post a link. I don't think you'll get paywalled unless you look at the Atlantic a lot, but it's worth a read. It's worth a read. Easing young people into death on the sidewalk. Wow, that's good stuff, even as it's heartbreaking. More to come. Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. He said that he can hear the person from inside of his vent. So I then walked inside of the Little Caesars workplace and I called the cops. And I'm glad that our guys, in particular our heavy rescue unit, carries a lot of different tools and we're able to use a lot of them today to get them out safely. I'm just glad they didn't turn the oven on because he would have been toast. That is uh, a guy who attempted to rob a Little Caesars in the night, I guess, and climbed down the chimney. I'm reminded of an old friend in law enforcement who once said, proof that you're not smart enough for a life of crime is that you're considering a life in crime. Yikes. You're robbing a little Caesars of what? You want cardboard pizza boxes or what? Cut rate pizza? And yeah, I've eaten it myself, but let's face it. uh, it's It's not the best. Wow. Wow. You hate to get cooked to death trying to rob a Little Caesars. Anyway, Darwin tried to do his work, and those firefighters interfered as far as I'm concerned. So I don't know if you noticed there's a bit of inflation about. Mm, there are a couple of signs that it might be cooling off, although the June numbers, as we discussed yesterday, were terrible. A uh, handful of commentators have been commentating about it, and I thought some of the points of view were worth sharing with you. Let's start with clip 40. This is Josh Krauschar of uh, Axios. Is he Axios or real? I can't remember. He's a fabulous fellow, wherever he draws a check. This administration hasn't really acknowledged the degree of inflation. They were spinning today that gas prices uh, are going down a little bit, and, and the report didn't reflect that, that, that dynamic. But every other good, food, gas, energy, you name it, uh, the, the core inflation rate was, was through the roof. And when you can't acknowledge reality, when you have trouble uh, acknowledging the, the, the challenge in the first place, it's hard to, to spin it in, in a positive direction and have a plan to, to solve the problem. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. Uh, Positive Sean, our old producer, our former producer, once made the point that he really likes to go to the business news uh, to get the interpretation of things that are happening because 
business reporters, uh, they, they can't just be ideological because if their very business heavy viewers get bad advice or bad takes, it could hurt their business and they won't watch the business channel anymore. I thought that was actually a pretty astute point by, uh, Shawnee Boy. Um, Charlie Gasparino works for Fox Business News, but again, it's, it's the business channel and he made a couple of interesting points about inflation, the Biden administration, et cetera. Let's start with 41, Michael. Biden administration spent a lot of money. The Fed is raising interest rates. They want to tax people more. They've ramped up regulations. All their economic prescriptions have, you know, failed. I mean, there's absolutely there's not much you can say good about what these guys have done. Um, so why they want to double down on this is is beyond me. And then he talks about the idea of a soft landing and whether that's possible. Next one. Making a false, a, a soft landing is one of the more difficult things to do. The last time I can actually remember it is Alan Greenspan in 1994, where, you know, he started raising rates. We had a bubble in the bond market. The, the stock market was okay, but the economy was overheating. And then he landed it kind of softly. Mm. And then you had a huge pickup in 95. Obviously, you had the tech boom and all that. But that was literally the last time I can recall a soft landing. Well, and it's 28 years and it's, in the it's, it's it's not an art. It's not a science. It's a lot of finger in the wind. And uh, finally, 43. The real question is from the Biden administration is why they don't loosen up regulations, particularly on oil, gas exploration. And certain there's certain things they can do that is so easy, but they won't. And I think the reason why they won't is because the progressive wing of the party is just has them by the by you have them in a stranglehold. Yeah. And so you have the Fed raising rates by three-quarters of a percent, uh, what was that, a couple of weeks ago, and they're about to do it again, almost certainly on the strength of those June numbers, and it's going to cut off economic or choke off economic activity. That's the point of cooling off the economy, but those interest rates could get quite high. Got this note uh, from Lynn. We were talking about the late 70s, early 80s, when the interest rates were 18, 19, 20%, depending on what kind of loan you're talking about. And she writes, uh, you just talked about my life. In 1979, my husband, four children, and I moved from Southern California to Northern California. We bought a three-bedroom, two-bathroom home, 1,500 square feet, at 14% interest. We didn't qualify for the loan, 55 grand at the time, so the owners carried a second due in two years. Uh, at, yes, a 21% interest rate. This is 1981, I guess. My husband was a store clerk. I did child care. We drove a VW bus. No, voca- no vacations. No eating out. No movies. We're all doing very well now, and my children know how to budget. We're very blessed. Uh, I doubt it's going to get to that point. Uh, because the inflation is caused by some different things now than it was then. But, uh, yeah, there could be absolutely serious belt tightening by families and by individuals, Americans. Will the government tighten its belt, or will it keep printing money, tempting the inflation bear to come right back out of the cave again down the road? I guess we'll all find out together. More to come. Armstrong and Getty. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armstrong and Getty Show. As distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. All right, that's the floatus the other day. With some idiotic speech trying to pander to Hispanic people, once again, she hacks her one Spanish. Well, bodega. Everybody knows that word, but I don't know. Maybe it's just she's old. So she, uh, so she slaughters that word and then uh, utters the words that have unleashed taco gate on the American landscape. She's talking about the diversity of Hispanic people, which is, you know, a reasonable point, but. As unique as the Bogodas, as unique as this, as unique as the breakfast tacos in San Antonio. So uh, uh, Hispanic groups are trying to act like they're offended. Uh, Maybe saying tacos was idiotic, I suppose. I don't like fake outrage, even when it's by people I generally agree with. Um, I just thought it was idiotic and and. You know what, Hispanic people, you're fine. You're fine. The old lady doddering flotus wife of the doddering president has not laid a glove on you. And I just think, you know, the fake fake, uh, outrage, it gets your opponent on their heels. So enables you to move forward a little bit because they're busy covering up. Anyway, Marco Rubio had a couple of appropriate comments about that, but then he gets into a bigger theme. Uh, go ahead with 20, Michael. Look, it's silly because you know what? That, those are speeches that are written 
probably by some young person who majored in Latinx studies at you know Columbia University or something, <laughs> and then they write the stuff up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's exactly the right attitude for a, a proud, smart uh, Cuban American man to have. But then he goes into uh, the greater significance of it and the trends in the Democratic Party, which I thought was pretty interesting. Twenty-one. Their entire agenda, the entire Democratic agenda, is designed to cater to the pet issues of affluent liberals living in trendy neighborhoods and expensive cities far away from the consequences of the things they're for. So they've got this radicalism on climate change, and it means higher gas prices, and they think government's the solution to everything, so you have this inflation because of the spending. And they're against the immigration enforcement, so we have an immigration enforcement crisis, and they think the criminal justice system is mean, and so we have a crime wave because police officers won't arrest people and prosecutors won't prosecute, and the list goes on and on. And so normal, everyday people, working people, look at all this and say, these people don't fight for us. They are fighting for a small group of radical, progressive, rich liberals, and the rest of us are out on their own. That's the fact here. That's what's happening. You know what's remarkable is you have Marco Rubio saying that, and he's absolutely correct. Um, Bill Maher agrees with him. Guys like Matt Taibbi agree with him. James Carville agrees with him. Virtually everybody but that incredibly loud, uh, heartless, brutal, more than willing to drag you down and end your career types on the way, way left. I mean, everybody agrees, and yet there's nothing the Democrats feel like they can do about it? Is that because they think Twitter is America, as the saying goes? Is that because that's where the fundraising is coming from? The energy and the volunteers, the young, woke lunatics? I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know. Because the chorus of voices saying that same thing is so universal. You'd think, how the hell can you not wake up to that and, and adjust your sales? Um, but Marco's absolutely right. I still like Marco Rubio. I think he's a sharp guy, but uh, what his future is, who knows? Um, one more note on Hispanic America. And again, it's ridiculous to talk about Hispanic America. They only do that. Because they want to put brown people in a pen so they'll always vote the same way, the way they got away with making black America do the same thing for the longest time. But a Cuban American has nothing to do with a recent uh, Guatemalan immigrant, has nothing to do with a Venezuelan fleeing the communist rule, the rested, because they have somewhat similar skin tones and may or may not both speak Spanish, doesn't mean they see the world in the same way or have the same needs or anything. It's just it's it's the usual condescension and, and racialization of the left that, that just tires me out. It's so paternalistic, it bothers me. Anyway, one more note from that world, though. Um, there is a group of very powerful, very influential, conservative Spanish-speaking radio stations, including, and you don't know about this probably because you're not A in radio, B a Spanish speaker, but Radio Mambi, M-A-M-B-I, in, uh, based out of uh, Miami, um, with some hosts who are big, big, big in the Spanish-speaking media world. Uh, Nelson Rubio, Dania Alexandrino, Lourdes Ubueta, and excuse me, Lourdes, if I uh, mispronounce your name, but they've all quit their gigs because a George Soros-funded and linked group is buying out the stations for the purpose of heaving the conservatives out and, and, and silencing them. So they've all quit en masse, which is a hell of a deal because, you know, they're, they're pretty good gigs paying pretty good money, but... Um, 
in this weird bi not bilingual duolingual America where some people speak exclusively Spanish. Uh, you might not be aware of that, but um, what the reaction will be? I mean, just on a purely business level, these people will find gigs because they're really good at what they do and they're popular, um, and they're they they're going to work for different entities. Um, but I'm curious to see whether the reaction among uh, Spanish speakers, Hispanic Americans, is that whoa. Why did you just screw up my favorite radio station? And why am I listening to these progressive voices on it telling me to defund the police now? And I just think this might be driving more and more Hispanic voters into the arms of the Republican Party, uh, which will probably disappoint them when they get there because that's their history. But anyway, it's just it's an interesting trend and a hell of a move. Old George Soros, who's now, what, 80 something years old, still trying to bring about his Marxist vision. So the whole Taco Gate thing, like I said, it's just so silly. And we spend so much time talking about it. Or the guy who, do we have the tape of the guy heckling AOC? It's crude. I don't think, I didn't reprint the sound sheet. I don't know if it's up to date. Do we have that? Uh, we'll look for it. Um, oh, you do? Okay, go ahead and play it. My favorite big booty Latina. I love you, AOC. You're my favorite. She wants to kill babies, but she's still beautiful. You look very beautiful in that dress. You look very sexy. Look at that booty on AOC. That's my favorite big booty Latina. Watch your little selfie. I love it. My favorite AOC. Nice to meet you, AOC. Look how sexy she looks in that dress. Woo! I love it, AOC. Hot, hot, hot like a tamale. All right. So that's some sort of right-wing provocateur or something like that. Eh, That's just dopey and rude. But so we're spending our time talking about that or taco gate or whatever earlier in the show we brought up the the semiconductor problem as the new york times puts it or as the wall street journal uh analyzes it um what's their subhead uh u.s subsidy push seems to have stalled as uh, talk of more export bans arise what they're talking about is the semiconductor industry specifically these super advanced semiconductors that are absolutely critical for smartphones okay yeah i like my smartphone i use it all the time uh industrial uses super important of course but they're incredibly important for military technology to make our unbelievably well-equipped and trained military function we need to have these chips And 90% of them are made in Taiwan, which is okay. Taiwan's a friend. They're good at it. They're efficient. But they're also under the gun of the Chinese. And if there's some sort of disruption to this one company in Taiwan, and I've said, I'm sorry, I said 90% of the chips are made in Taiwan. 90% of the chips are made by a single company in Taiwan. TSMC, it's called. That is so fragile. I mean, can you imagine being, I don't know, uh, a car manufacturer, and 90% of your tires were made by a single company in, I don't know, Bavaria. And if there's ever like a, I almost said a hurricane, I don't think they have hurricanes in Bavaria. I don't know, an avalanche or something. (laughs) If an avalanche wrecks that factory, you just can't sell any cars for months. I mean, you'd never permit that. 
You're fire your CEO if he's got you in that precarious position. But our country, economically and particularly militarily, is in that precarious position because of the the chip thing, the shortage, and the the and the fact that we have no domestic chip industry. We make zero percent of the advanced chips, none, not a one. We make delicious potato chips in like 75 different flavors. Check out your local snack aisle. It's a testament to American ingenuity. But none of these chips. And so what's being debated in Congress, and nobody's talking about this. The Senate actually passed a, a law saying, hey, we're going to subsidize the domestic semiconductor industry to the tune of $52 billion bucks. Now, maybe you're calling it, you think it's corporate welfare, conservatives, libertarians are uncomfortable with this because it's a very profitable business. But the problem is other countries, including China, South Korea, Japan, India, Germany, they uh, subsidize the hell out of this industry. And so we can't compete with them. The global reality is the semiconductor industry is is subsidized like crazy because it's so brutally uh, uh, critical for national security and economic security. And so, again, that, that debate whether we should be giving corporate welfare to a profitable business or not, totally legitimate uh, conversation to have. I get people's discomfort with it. But the Senate, the U.S. Senate passed a law saying, yeah, we're going to help it out. We're going to launch this. We're going to we're going to become uh, self-sufficient in semiconductors, particularly the advanced stuff. The House passed a separate measure that was full of bloat and and helping out totally unrelated stuff um, or or not directly related stuff. I'll say that. And the Senate can't accept the House's bill and the House won't cooperate. And so it's just stalled. And Mitch McConnell, who's a hardball pitcher, no doubt says, y'all got to come around quicker. We're just going to abandon this thing. And if you don't drop like uh, some of your big giant spending in the house, we're not even going to cooperate with you. And so this is just going to go away out of hardball R versus D politics. Never mind national security. Never mind economic security. It's just it's not going to get political contributions. It's not going to get, uh, you know, house uh, seats in the house in the midterm. So they've just abandoned working on it, which is incredibly troubling to me. And uh, meanwhile, we're talking about Taco Gate and the rest of the stupidity. I just this is no way to run a country. All right. We're going to finish strong in a moment. Stay with us. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. 
like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After months of war, they fail to take Kiev. It's taken them a long time. After months of war, they fail to take Kiev. It's taken them a long time to basically do anything here. But after months, they've taken one of the two provinces of the Donbass. That is Luhansk. So that is significant. In many ways, significant strategically, but I think psychologically, you know, symbolically for Russia, finally they've, they've got something in this war. And now they're moving in to the next phase, the second half of the Donbass, that's the Donetsk region, and they want to take that too. That's James Longman of ABC News on a podcast. Go ahead, play the next clip, Michael. A huge issue at the moment is what they're calling Russification. This is where Russia, in the areas that it's already controlling, seeks to really lay down roots, proper deep roots that will not be pulled up anytime soon. Russification. Lovely. Uh, Russia making incremental, grinding, and costly territorial gains in the Donbass, the eastern region of Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, Ukrainian troops inflicting uh, some losses on advancing Russians. But um, right now, Russian forces are still controlling a swath of territory from southern Ukraine up through the eastern Donbass to the north of Kharkiv. And they're still trying to complete their conquest of the Donbass while Ukrainian forces push back, particularly in the south. But right now, not much territory is changing hands. It's a standoff. For instance, analysts at the Institute for the Study of War report Russia's military machine is taking an operational pause, probably regrouping, reforming units depleted by casualties, letting troops rest. Um, Raphael Cohen, who's director of the Rand Corporation's Strategy and Doctrine Program, told the dispatch, quote, over the last couple of months, the war slowed to basically a fight of attrition, even though Russia's made gains, particularly in Luhansk province. Uh, it's fairly small and fairly slow. And ditto with Ukrainian gains in the south. Uh, 
Now, Russia is still militarily bombarding Ukrainian positions and making limited probing attacks, kind of testing the water for the future. But Russian forces have escalated attacks on civilians in recent weeks. Just lovely. Strike on an apartment building or buildings in eastern Ukraine over the weekend killed at least 47 people, including children. Ukrainian emergency services said Wednesday officials have urged civilians to evacuate that region of the Donbass. They've also stepped up long-range strikes, targeting ammunition depots, command uh, posts, and other military facilities. So, uh, Just grinding on. Grinding on. Putin has gotten really boastful, by the way. Said a couple of things. Largely speaking, we haven't even started anything in earnest. He boasted last week. Oh, that's beautiful. Tell that to the dead soldiers' families. And uh, Putin said of the Ukrainian resistance, we were hearing that they wanted to defeat us on the battlefield. Let them try. So that's just absolutely lovely. Um, Grinding standoff for months, years. Is that the only outcome that's really even worth considering? It, it looks like it. Uh, one more detail or two. Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, said Wednesday, Russia has interrogated, detained, and deported between 900,000 and 1.6 million Ukrainian civilians, including 260,000 children. Zelensky put the total at 2 million. They're trying to just empty Ukraine of Ukrainians. Just insane. Almost finished. Let's get ready. Final thoughts with Armstrong and Getty. Wow, beautifully done. Uh, Let's get a final thought from everybody on the crew to wrap things up. Michael, I will warn you, my final thought is going to be clip number three. But first of all, sir, our technical director, what is your final thought? You know, er early in the show, we were talking about pranks. And the one thing I wanted to do as a kid, I never got to do it. Maybe I should still do it, is get a talking toilet seat. Ah. When people sit down, you you know... You say, hey, it's dark, I can't see, or something like that, and just scare the heck out of them, you know? Ah, the talking toilet seat, a classic, fabulous idea. Uh, It's not too late. Young Alex is our behind-the-scenes producer. Alex, a final thought? Speaking of pranks, I did one in high school. It was one of those long, slow burns. I put a thumbtack where I sat in the wall every day throughout the year. Never got discovered. At the end of the year, there was over 200 tacks in the wall, and the teacher finally goes, what the hell are all the tacks for? And I laughed as I graduated. (laughs) wow okay benign but uh jack has gone home he's got some sort of disease his final thought is gosh i hope i feel better soon my final thought i will cede my time to a woman in florida oh my god there's an iguana in my toilet i came down last night at 10 30 to make my little treat as i normally do and skipped on over to the bathroom and opened the door and did a quick turnaround (laughs) because i saw this thing in there and quickly shut the door he was really big he took up most of the toilet bowl you gotta check the bowl before you sit I don't care what time of night it is. Use your smartphones. You sit on a toilet with an iguana in it, you're going to get bit hard where you don't want to get bit at all. Or maybe you do, and that's none of my business. 
By the way, during the punk era, I played in a band called Toilet Iguanas. Our shows were nasty. A lot of spitting and stuff. This is disgusting. Anyway, uh, Armstrong and Getty wrapping up another grueling four-hour workday. So many people to thank. So little time. Go to armstrongandgetty.com. Our website has the hot links. Articles we referred to. Stories you ought to read. They're there for you. The videos we mentioned. You can get some A&G swag. The Welcome to the Spicy Times t-shirts flying off the shelves. Uh, God bless America. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm strong and getty. How, how many more hours am I doing this? We're just going to keep playing. Are you sure of that, dude? To me, that would be the reasonable, rational thing to do. Uh, well, don't smoke crack. That's ludicrous. Right. And so grotesque. You cannot talk to me that way. Full stop. So let's go out with a bang. Well, what's your point with that? Of course it will. My point is not to present the crap out of people. Not to airing it out like a show. What's my point? On that high note, thank you all very much. Armstrong and Getty. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.